grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. The truth of adoptive status can be discovered in a variety of ways. Sometimes the secret is revealed following the death of a parent, through accidental disclosure by a friend or a relative or neighbour, when approached by a birth family member, when applying for a passport by coming across the adoption papers, or during an argument with a family member. Over two episodes, we'll be unpacking late discovery adoption. Today we're talking with Sue about her experience of discovering she was adopted at 23 right before Christmas in 1988, and how writing has helped her understand her experience. Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Thank you very much, Joy. Uh, Joe. Oh, that's a good start. Let <laughs> 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 me do that again. <laughs> renamed you in the first five seconds. <laughs> it's not the first time it's happened to me, Sue, so it's all good. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, that got... Well, that's in. Not... I'm not... I'm not editing that out. That's awesome. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for asking me um, to do this interview with you. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. We're great to have you and um, so grateful to have you, I should say. And um, just for anyone listening, we've got a little video happening between Sue and I so we can see each other in these COVID times, um, but we're not face-to-face together. so. Um, So we might get started. Um, so one of the things that I've discovered over the past 20 years is that while there are so many shared themes and experiences, no two adoption stories are the same. Can you tell us about the day that you discovered that you were adopted? Yes, yes. Um, as you said, that was in December 1988. Um, I was 23 years old at that time and my um, parents and I had had a fairly difficult relationship for some years. Um, I was right at the end of a medical degree at that time, which is a whole other story. That was something that my father had had told me that I would do, that I would become a doctor. So that's what I did. Um and so I was right at the very end of that. I was doing a supplementary term in, um, somewhat ironically, obstetrics and gynaecology. Um, and uh, we, we'd had all sorts of just arguments about all sorts of things. And um, mainly it was to do with um, me sort of wanting to just be a, be a normal person and go out and see people and do things. And my father was 
was a reasonably controlling sort of person who didn't like that. It's almost you separating off from them a little bit as an adult. Yes, yes. I felt that at 23 it was probably, you know, a reasonable thing to expect that I would, you know, have relationships and go out with people and do that sort of thing. Um, So we'd had um, a particular fight. Um, There was one fight going on about me being the bridesmaid for a friend of mine who was getting married later that month. Um, I won't go into the details about that. It's not not that interesting for listeners. But um, And I got to the point where I thought I've had enough. I've, I have to leave this household and I'm going to tell my parents that I'm leaving home. So I actually, the night before this particular day, I, I packed a suitcase and... and, and um, I'd already made some contacts with people. Um, I won't use any names, but I, I spoke to a um, uh, one of the doctors at the Royal Brisbane Hospital who'd uh, been one of my lecturers and told him my situation, all, of course, not knowing what was about to happen, um, and uh, but just saying that I had a very difficult relationship with my parents and I needed to leave home. So he actually helped me and he was very, he was he was really good. And so I knew I was going to go straight to the um, the quarters, the medical student, and I, I think it was a medical student quarters at the Royal Brisbane Hospital at that time. So anyway, on this particular day, and funnily enough, um, probably because it was, such a huge, huge day for me. It was it was quite traumatic. Um, I can't actually remember what the date was. All I know is it was sometime in December and it was sometime before the 19th, which was when my friend's wedding was taking place. Um, so, you know, I just had this terrible roiling, roiling feeling inside me the whole day and I, I can't even remember what time of day it was. It was probably middle of the day. Went into my went into the living room of our house where my parents were sitting and I just sat down and said to them, you know, I gave a little preamble about, you know, things haven't been so great and, and uh, you know, I really thought it was a, probably about time for me to leave home and I think we might actually be able to take some breaths and perhaps be a little bit kinder to each other if we had a bit of space you know all that sort of thing and um and so I hit that tennis ball across the net and and my father came back with a fairly you know fairly sort of yeah an ace I guess and hit it back to me with well I suppose you know you were adopted Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, yeah. Joe. Um, and no, I didn't. <laughs> no, I did not. So, um, yeah, it, 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 uh, it, that moment was, I, I call it the pivot point of my life because there's a time before that moment Um and then there was everything that's come after and everything that's come after. There's two diff- completely different lives, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. 
it must have been incredibly shocking at the time to discover him, and particularly in that way, being disclosed in an argument. Do you remember what was going through your mind at all? Yes, yes. Um, I've got, I've almost got like a sort of a snapshot of the moment, or because it's not a snapshot, it's it's like a, a short reel of film going through my that goes through my head when I think about it. And so I can see my father sitting in the in his chair, and my mother is sitting just to the left of me. She doesn't say anything. Um, there's only one thing that she says during this whole moment. Um, but, you know, Dad and I are having this, this to and fro. And what's going through my head is, I, I know my father doesn't always tell the truth, um, but this is true. I know this has happened. Suddenly there was just this gigantic click in my head. Oh, my God. That's why. That's why things are so weird. <laughs> it's it's it was yeah it was just uh it, it was like that you know people talk about oh you know when they think they're going to die and their whole life flashes before their eyes. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't think I was going to die, but I thought um oh my god you know th- just everything went past me and I thought there's all these things that happened um, weird ways that people would look at look at mum and me in the shops. Like I can distinctly remember being in in a shop at Cooperoo, just mum and I. Um, I would have been, you know, a teenager, and and the, the the shop assistant looked at both of us and and said something about, you know, um, how are you and your friend today? Um, and at the time, I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, ever since I look at photos of my mum who um, was, um, you know, a good deal older for a parent um, because my parents were in their late 40s when they adopted me. And they're both from England. My mum was almost the the classic English rose, you know, very fair skin, blue eyes. Um, She had this this blonde hair, uh, very, very English accent, which neither of my parents lost their English accent. and here's me. Um, <laughs> the Complete opposite. All of the, yeah. the, 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 of course, people can't see me, but I've got, I've got, I mean, there's a bit of a henna assistance now. Um, <laughs> but I've always had dark hair, dark eyebrows, dark eyes, olive skin, you know, yeah. and, and I don't have a very English accent. Um, I, I just, you know, now I can see it. It's, it's, you know, blazingly obvious. People must have looked at us and thought, <laughs> what is going on here? We don't look anything like each other. Um, but that was I was completely blind to that. Um, so this moment was just all of this, all of these things just whizzing past. And there was a, another moment which always sticks out to me when I was younger, I was at school. Um, oh well, I, I was at this particular school that I went to between the age, between the grades of nine and twelve. And mum and I were sitting, once again, it was mum and I, we were sitting down in the assembly hall, there was some sort of function on, and the headmaster's wife came up to us and and sort of made a bit of polite talk. And she and then she sort of stopped and looked at us and said, do you, you don't look much like each other, you two, do you? And at the time, once again, at the time I thought, 
that's a weird thing to say. And now I think, what must my mother have been thinking, you know? Uh, And, of course, she never betrayed anything um, at all. Um, So, yeah, so that's what was going through my head, Jo. It was just, just all of this stuff. Yeah. So it all made sense. It made perfect sense that I was adopted, but at exactly the same time, it was a tremendous shock. Yeah, I bet it was. Um, so I'm gathering that your relationship with your adoptive parents was um, complicated growing up. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, yes, it was complicated. Um I mean, from my point of view, um, the main conflict with, was with my father. He always seemed to me like a man who just needed to be in control of everything. And he, um, so he controlled both mum and I. Um, and I realised now there was, you know, there was sort of some, there was some domestic violence going on here in an economic sense, um, but um, he he just needed to, to have the three of us together as a little family unit. So a lot of conflict arose out of that. Um, I couldn't really make any decisions for myself. Um, my career decisions were made by him, um, and all decisions, like friends I had, um, I could make my whoever friends I wanted, but he would come in and he'd always try to interfere. He would try to break up friendships. Um, I didn't really ever have a serious romantic relationship because there were, you know, no. Um, yeah. And when I did, that caused a, a, a just a tremendous blow up um so it was that sense of of him controlling everything that I did um and he also had the methods that he used to do that were very for me very destructive that's what I would call them now um he um would do the silent treatment which was tremendous um, effective because I would always feel guilty. Oh, I must be making my father feel terrible. He's gone all silent on me. Um, he'd never explain what the problem was. He'd just go silent. And, yeah, I think in my memoir I, I, I write about about this. Um, it's it's a very destructive way of treating other people to, to just sort of and for an adoptive person, which of course I didn't know at the time, um, now I understand in particular why I responded the way I did. Um, to go silent on someone is a form of rejection, and he yeah. did this all the time. So I just, you know, it was the, it was obviously reaching deep in inside me and and doing something to me that I didn't fully understand. Uh, I only understand that now. Um, but, um, we, we had a very, um, odd life. I went to, we we moved around a lot. Um, 
I went to, um, I think, eight different primary schools and uh, a couple of different high schools. That's not so not so unusual, but but eight different primary schools. Never really made made you know friendships. Can't remember very many people I met during those primary school years. Um, three different countries we went to. Um, you know, there was conflict between my parents about financial matters. Um, my father went bankrupt in the early 70s um, and we then my maternal grandmother paid for us to go and live with her in the UK uh, for about 10 months, which was a fascinating experience when you're, <laughs> when you're nine years old and <laughs> I go over to this other country and it was tremendous conflict there as well. My my father didn't get on with my with my grandmother. Um, lots of fights and it was quite a strange sort of existence. So there was it was a it was a twenty three years of of early childhood was okay. It was just a bit weird. Um, teenage years. Once I sort of got into those teenage years, that that often normal conflict that that kids and parents have was accentuated now the the other really the important thing um, about this was that my father and my mother being the age that they were they were both born during the first world war and they both experienced the second world war in england and my father was in the raf and he was a navigator and so he went on bombing missions and saw a lot of his friends killed, um, and he was eventually invalided out of the RAF. And really that that sort of, that experience never left him. I have no idea whether he received any sort of effective treatment for it. It certainly didn't appear so to me. Um, he often self-medicated um, with um, alcohol and um other things that he shouldn't have done, um, and nothing illegal, but but just stuff that it just made it worse. Um, and so now I realise he he had PTSD um, as well as probably a, just a, a, some sort of strange um, personality disorder, which which made him um, um, quite narcissistic. I don't. I often don't like using that that word because it's I think I do feel it's overused but but really everything was about him and both mum and I had to subsume everything we wanted for him so any dreams or ideals or anything that I might have wanted to do um, had to be subsumed to him um, and so I, I became a very depressed young woman um, I also had, was very anxious because um, every morning I, I would wake up, particularly as I got a little older into those teenage years and then starting the medical degree, I'd wake up and think, what mood is my father going to be in today and will he be blaming me for it? So that's how I started every day and some days would be okay, um, he'd be all right uh, making jokes, doing all that sort of stuff, and other days he would not, and that would be when you just I would just try to keep keep a low profile, you know, keep things quiet as possible. Pardon me. 
So I hope that's not COVID, Sue. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can't clear your throat anymore these days. <laughs> no, and I have to keep remembering to <laughs> cough in your elbow. <laughs> We're pretty safe across video, I think. <laughs> yes. So, so um, yeah, so um, and I've had a, you know, that has had its repercussions um, throughout my life. But I do understand that my father had a very, um, he had a pretty difficult upbringing. His mother was very controlling as well, very similar personalities from what I can gather from what other family members have told me. Um and that war experience, and then he he just never seemed to be able to have much luck after that. He he sort of because of his his mental state, I think he had lots of problems getting and keeping jobs. Um, yeah, so his life was very difficult. My mother's life was very difficult as a consequence of that. And of course, now I understand they you know they were married twenty five years. Um, had been married for 25 years when they adopted me. So I can't really imagine what it must have been like for both of them to not be able to have children, um, particularly in, in that era. You know, I was born in 1965. Very difficult. So, yeah. yeah. yeah you, your father sounds like he was a very domineering figure in the family so much so that um, you talk about him a lot more than your mother. Um, what was your relationship with your mother like? Yeah, my, my, we had a, we did have a much better relationship. I think we were, I was going to say we were, we were closer than certainly than I was with my father. Um, she was a, she was a very kind person. Um, and it is interesting how I don't, he does dominate, <laughs> um, whereas mum tends to get sort of pushed to the sidelines. And my feelings now about her and my memories of her um, are that, that, it, it was a little bit of um, her and me against dad, um, a little bit, except it really wasn't. Um, but it sort of seemed a bit like that. Um, I mean, she did try to defend me at times um, and sometimes I would try to defend her as well in, in arguments. Um but yeah, I mean, we, as you can tell, I'm finding it difficult to answer your question, actually, Joe, because my, I think my memories are so coloured by uh, the negative experience uh, that I had with my dad, yeah. that I'm actually finding it hard to sort of talk about my mum. Um, but she was, in essence, a very. Um, kindly and sweet person and um you know she she loved her own mother and I think it was very difficult for her to be so far away from her because she I think they left England 
So we married in 1939, and I think they left England sometime in the early 1960s. Um, so, and we went back for that 10-month period in 1974. So she was away from her mother for a long time, and I think that really hurt her. She never talked about it, but I'm pretty sure it hurt her quite a lot. Yeah. And, and we were also very distant from other families. So it was really just the three of us. Um, but I, I was a very um, introverted, reserved um, kid and teenager who found it difficult really to um, talk to other people. Um, and so I sort of often kept to myself even at home. I'd sort of sit in my room and read or whatever. Um, write or draw or whatever it was I was doing at whatever age. Um, so, yeah, I, I can remember um, actually because I because we moved around so much, my schooling actually in the primary years was very broken up and I can remember there was a period of time when I wasn't going to school. We were in Australia, um, possibly, possibly in Sydney somewhere, and... Um, my mum would try to sort of teach me in some way. She'd get me to read um, a novel and then actually write out paragraphs from the novel just so that I would keep my writing, actual cursive writing going and all that sort of thing and just sort of – and, you know, I guess it was one way of, of sort of helping me to, to – write proper sentences and speak proper sentences and all that sort of thing. And um, I think it was, I think it was, uh, it was, um, the book was, uh, I can remember the book, it was in a funny red cover. It was obviously a fairly inexpensive version of, of um, Robinson Crusoe or Kidnapped or what? Yes, um, yeah. yeah, one of those sort of classic novels and, and, you know, and there were some gruesome bits in that, and I'd be writing that out, and Mum would read it and say, "Oh, oh, this is terribly, this is terribly gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> this is bloody and gory. Oh, I don't like this." <laughs> Sounds like me when I find my son watching YouTube videos on his computer in the lounge, and I walk past and go, "What are you watching?" <laughs> it's the older version. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so obviously writing was um, sparked for you back then, and I've had the great honour of reading the manuscript that you wrote for your PhD entitled A Shark in the Garden. And as soon as I read that title, it intrigued me. Can you tell us where that title came from? Uh, yes, yes. And thank you very much for reading uh, <laughs> reading my memoir, Jane. Oh, it was beautiful. It was my pleasure. appreciative of that. Um, yes, Um a shark in the garden. Uh, yes, where, where on earth did that come from, you're saying? Um, <laughs> well, I had a lot of trouble um, trying to think of a, a, a working title um, and I can't even remember what, what, what any of – I don't even know whether I had any other working titles. But one day um, my partner was um, – on the computer and he was listening to, for completely other reasons, for his own reasons, he was listening to um, Sylvia Plath talking about a poem that she'd written um, in 1959 called Point Shirley. 
which was based on her memories of uh, staying with her grandmother. Um, now, I think this was in the United States, which would make sense, but um, I can't remember exactly where, but her mother lived on the coast and they would get storms and there was this one particular storm that happened whilst Plath was there with her grandmother and it was very violent and there was lots of debris everywhere the next morning, including um, this, I think it was a fairly small, this little shark that had ended up in her grandmother's front garden amongst the geraniums and whatever else was growing there. Wow. And so she was talking about this and I was standing there listening and I thought, a shark in the garden. These two incongruous things together. The shark gets washed into this garden, not really meant to be there, but <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt. I felt that, you know, I was I the sh who was the shark and who was the garden? I'm not sure. But I felt that I was the shark really, and I'd been washed into my parents' garden and they'd, they'd taken me in <laughs> and I did not belong there. And yeah. so that and that title is stuck. It's, it's sort of, I still find it a slightly awkward title, but it sort of has worked very well as a, certainly, uh, you know, as a working title for a manuscript. It's worked yeah. really well and it just says exactly how I've, how I felt. Well, I vote that it never changes. So when it gets to publishing <laughs> stage, please do not change the title publishers out there because I think it's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So when I was reading the manuscript, um, we'll, we'll step backwards, I guess. So um, it's just before Christmas. Your father has just disclosed that you're adopted and you immediately that you know, that very day then move into the student quarters at the university. And you say in the manuscript that you put adoption into a corner to be dealt with later. When and how did you begin to deal with it? Yes, yes. It took some time. Um, I think I, I basically didn't deal with it very well at all. Um, but really things didn't start to get organised in my head until I finally decided to apply for my original birth certificate. Now, I was born in New Zealand, um, so I wrote to um, the New Zealand, is it the birth, death, mad, uh, no, sorry, was that it? Birth, it's birth, death, death and marriages, marriages yeah. Oh, actually, no, sorry, that's wrong. Let, let me rewind. I actually was writing to some post-adoption resource centres, mm -hmm. um, first of all, just to get some general sort of ideas about what to do. And getting your original birth certificate was, was the big one. You, you sort of, if you get that, then you've got something to work with. So... Can I just um, ask how old you were when you were doing all of this? Do you have any idea about what period um, of time? So this was 1994. Okay. So I'm, what's that, what does that make me? Nearly 30. Okay. Um, and so I wrote to the authorities in New Zealand and I got my um, original birth certificate from them. Um, I also um, asked, I can't remember if it was an, 
adoption service in New Zealand, or I think it was, I think there was a post-adoption resource centre in New Zealand that I wrote to, just to ask about, you know, how could I go about finding my original mother if she was still in New Zealand? Because, of course, I knew nothing about who she was or, or anything. Um, and so I think they did a search for me um, through the registers, um, death and marriage, couldn't find anything um, with the name that I had given them. Um, so that was a little bit of a dead end. But with the certificate, I that was a really fantastic thing to get for me because, and I imagine it is for most people, but I had a name. Um, I had my original mother's name. Mm-hmm. I had where I had how old she was when she'd given birth to me, and I had where she had been born herself. Now there was no father's name, uh, but the key thing for me was that down the bottom was the name that she had given me um. at my birth, um, and that was that that for me said to me that uh, my mother had not really wanted to adopt me out. So, because, of course, I knew nothing. You, you know, you don't know anything, you know. So, um, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sort of, I genuinely was not being judgmental about her because I knew nothing about her circumstances, um, except that they were probably very difficult. Yeah. So I just, I just needed to know as much information as I possibly could. So for having that, having the fact that she had given me a name was tremendously important. Um, it sort of gave me that that feeling that that okay, she she may be more likely to want to find me or for me to find her. So that that was terrific to have that. Um, and then I sort of. I did a bit of internetting <laughs> in those earlier days, you know, adoption notice boards and this sort of thing, none of which really, no, nothing really worked terribly well, nothing nothing much happened. But The internet wasn't fantastic back then. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, that's right, and we had dial-up. Yeah. <laughs> Just as you're onto it, it drops out. <laughs> Somebody phones. <laughs> So um, anyway, it wasn't really until my adoptive mum died in January 2001 that I um, I seemed to then give myself permission to really go out and search properly. Um, now, I hadn't seen a lot of my adoptive parents in the time between December 1988 and uh the time that my mum died um we'd been very estranged from each other we had one brief sort of reconciliation around about 1994 around about the time I yes got got my original birth certificate um I didn't tell them anything about that um but did you have a conversation with them at all about adoption after that or um nothing at all after the first one nothing okay no um that area of of was a no-go um it was a no-go for me too because yeah because um 
we, we had no, we didn't know how to communicate with each other, the three of us. So it, it was, it, we just didn't know how to talk about anything important. Um, so it didn't happen. Uh, but they did at least get to meet my partner um, and he got to meet them. Um, and then it just, yeah, things just deteriorated again and, and that was it. So I didn't actually see my mother then between, until again, until she, until after she died, uh, which is something I regret. Um, but uh, she did die at home um, and, and Dad looked after her. So I will give him that. He, he was very loyal to her and he, he did care for her. Um, so after she died, I then thought, yes, I must, this is it. I've got to go and find my, try and find my, my original mother and possibly father as well. This was a tremendously tumultuous time between the time of the death of my mother and the death of my father, which occurred two years later. My partner and I were, were travelling um, between Brisbane and the Gold Coast on a regular basis to look after my father. Now, uh, looking, you know, my father and I just did not get on. <laughs> but there was nobody else because he had yeah. alienated everybody else in the family. He had no one to look after him. There was nobody. Um, there might have been somebody who would have who would have done it, but he was just not interested. Um, yeah. uh, so, in during this two years of of absolute tearing my hair out and just going completely nuts um, over my. Uh, this relationship which was just you know he was as cantankerous and as difficult and as controlling as he'd always been except worse yeah. but the difference was that I had a partner with me who stood up for me and I was 37 years old not 17 or 7 he still treated yeah. me as if I was 7 but, but I wasn't and I had already gone through, you know, much more life experience. So I sort of was able to handle it pretty badly, but I handled, <laughs> I handled yeah. it and we got through it. Um, and I went on the internet again onto uh, more adoption boards. I was contacted by a retired policeman who was in England and who said, look, can I help you? And I said, yes, that's that's very nice of you. And he said, why don't you write to the newspaper in the area in which your original mother was born? And so I did that. I said, thank you, I'll do that. And so I sorted out. Um, and interestingly, both my original mother and my adoptive father were both born in Kent, in the UK, um, and so I um, wrote to the Kent Messenger newspaper and they put a little tiny weeny little help column, <laughs> little notice in their paper. Um, it was so, you know, it was just a tiny little thing. They said don't put any identifying details in it, just enough so that anybody who knew would recognise it. So I did that. By some miracle, <laughs> a cousin of my um, original mother 
saw it. She was still living over there. She assiduously goes through the paper every day. She saw this and it rang bells in her head. So she contacted her brother in Wales, who then contacted their other sister, who was in Australia, and she said, oh, yeah. I never read that stuff. I, that always <laughs> amazes me that somebody reads those things. <laughs> I don't think I've ever looked at it, that section of the paper in my life. Yes. <laughs> that's right, It's John. meant to be, obviously. Yes. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, no, look, that's right. I mean, you know, you sort of think, oh, no, you don't. There's <laughs> nothing there. But, oh, boy, whole lives can be contained in those. <laughs> um, so, yes, so then uh, the sister in Australia wrote to uh wrote back um or emailed wrote her um brother and then he, i think that's how it went anyway they all communicated between the three of them and and sent me uh my original mother's address so i then you know i was going amazing! I can't believe this. Um, I was, (laughs) I was very, very, very excited. And it 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 seemed to have happened. Like everything seemed to fall into place. Um, You know, like it took sort of only a matter of days plus thirty-seven years. You know, (laughs) it was sort of like that. Um, And so I wrote to her an old-fashioned handwritten letter um and then she and I put my email address in there and so she emailed me back and she said can I is this email a, a you know a private one can I send you an explanation uh, and so she did and um I, I it was her it was her <laughs> first of all it was her it was my original mother um wow. and she lived in a country town in australia <laughs> oh, gosh. um because the whole family had moved out here uh, in the late 60s um and so we did a bit of back and forth um emailing we sent each other photos um and then you know she said look I'll, I'll you know the phone call we did the phone call and um lots of crying um <laughs> uh and it was fantastic and um we uh eventually so this was this is 2002 that this was happening early 2002 um and then later so it was about it was may 2002 when i flew down to where she lived or to the major city where she, in the state where she lives and um a, a dear dear friend of mine drove me up to this little country town that nobody's ever heard of uh, <laughs> and um uh and there she was. There she was. You know, we, my, my friend and I, we overshot the driveway and had to turn back and come back. It was a long driveway. We drove down there towards this carport. And um, 
of course, uh, you know, my mum was at the window <laughs> waiting for me to get there. And she comes out, comes out, appears, suddenly appears in the driveway as we're coming down. Oh, there she is. Um, uh, you know, I won't go on because I'll just start crying. But it was, it was amazing. I wrote a little, a, a very, very short micro story about this moment where I say that there was light coming from her face. Um, it was just that was it. And it's one of those moments that you just never, ever forget. It's it's just there. And uh, it was it was just just fantastic is not a good enough word, but yeah. <laughs> It, it was it was amazing, and um, and then of course I met all the rest of the family, and there was just just dozens of them. There's just dozens and dozens because I grew up as an only child. Suddenly, I've just got this enormous family. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so different because you didn't have much to do with extended family with your adoptive parents' family, did you? So That's right. it'd be That's totally right. different. Yeah. yeah, yeah, completely different, and. In fact, that was one thing that happened after, which is a bit sad, but but it was good for me, but it was a bit sad for my adoptive mum because she didn't get to experience all of this. Um, but but after she died, um, Dad and I had to inform everybody, and so we got in, reconnected with people who had we hadn't seen who some people I'd never met in yeah. my adoptive family. Um, which was actually really a positive, a positive thing. But then, so I have all this adoptive, new adoptive family, new adoptive family that I, you know, never really had much to do with. Um, and, then, and then there's all this new biological family. And, you know, and I, I discovered I had um, two brothers. Um, now my, my, I must say my original mum and original father did not get together again. They well, they did get together again, but they decided that that no, this wasn't going to work out. So they went their separate ways. Um, and I do have a very good relationship with my mother. And I have two brothers. I have a stepdad. I have cousins. I had I had a grandma. Um, who only died a couple of years ago, so I did get to know her a little bit. Um, she was 95 when she died. Um, there's, there's an uncle, there's aunts, there's, there's just so many people, and then there's more relatives in the UK. Um, and it's been fabulous to feel a part of this big family. I've got nieces and nephews, and it's amazing. Um, so now with my, um, original father, it's a, it is a completely different story because he's over in the UK, um, and I have three siblings from him. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have five siblings, um, and that that's been a really interesting experience because I don't know how to be a sister. I have no idea how to do this new thing called being a sister. <laughs> um, so I had to learn that, and um, yeah, it, it's it's something I've actually had to learn because I don't know how to do it. So I reckon you'd be pretty good at it, Sue. 
they, you know, my, my two brothers who I've got to know, I mean, one of them also lives over in the UK now, but but uh, they're both lovely, easy to get on with. It was a challenge for them to suddenly have a sister and suddenly have this new yeah. about their mother. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it, that was a bit of a challenge for them. But, but you know, we we get on and it's now been what's that 18 years since that reunion and it's it it still works we still we email we 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 phone we're not always doing it we're not always in touch but you know my partner and I go down and visit them they come up here to visit not only me but their son and their grandkids and you know I actually feel a part of the family which is which is really uh, which is really great now when I say that it's still I still actually feel new to the family and I still have a a feeling of um, there's still that little feeling of not quite fitting in, either in the adoptive family or in my uh, biological family. You know, I still feel there's still that slight feeling of, of you know. <laughs> I can completely relate to that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I can feel all of those things at the same time. Uh, so which is which is interesting but I'm okay about feeling uh that I don't quite fit in um whilst also feeling that yes I'm I'm friends with my adoptive family and I do feel a part of my biological family as well but then I also I am my own person I am who I am and if I don't feel entirely a part of either of those families that's okay that's yeah that's how it is so yeah Mm. so um when I was writing um memoir about my adoption experience years ago it was it was largely about trying to understand my own experience and figure out who I was and how I felt about things what were some of the reasons for you to write a memoir Yes, Joe. Yes, originally I think I just wanted to 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 get get all these feelings out. I think I just wanted to get words on the page um, because that was the main way that I communicated was words on the page. Yeah. And so a lot of that was was very bad poetry. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and. Uh, then it sort of took the form of fiction um, and I did put together a, once again, very bad manuscript of fictional pieces about about this whole thing of, of, of finding out that I'd been adopted. And then as, as the years went by, so this is sort of in the 90s that I'm doing this stuff, and then as the years went by I, th- I thought, what what shape is this taking? What 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 shape does it need to be for it to to mean something to me and to other people? And it became apparent that memoir was that shape because 
I actually didn't want to fictionalise it. I couldn't. That that sort of worked as a as more of a cathartic thing, but catharsis is only sort of part of that part of the function of writing. And I felt this needs to be um, shaped into something that other people can read to get a sense of what it's like. Obviously not for everybody as a, as a late discovery adoptee, which is what my story is about, but to perhaps gain an understanding of how one person had this experience and therefore what some of the issues might be for other people. Um, so that's when I started thinking, okay, let's write this as an actual true story, not not a a one that's cloaked in, you know, fictional things. Yeah. Um, and so I did that for for some years, and you know, oh, it it was hard. <laughs> it was hard, and and it 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 wasn't going anywhere. So that's when I decided, okay, how am I going to how am I going to finish this? Because it was it was never going to be finished. Um, so that's why I then thought I'm going to do um, a PhD. I'll say that quietly. <laughs> <laughs> no, not another degree. Um, <laughs> but it was tremendously helpful, um, tremendously helpful because I had a fantastic supervisor um she she got it and so I was able to really just do my thing with her guidance and you get to do things like go to conferences present papers read to other people um, publish papers publish excerpts from from what from your memoir all really, really helpful and getting other people's input and just having that sort of little um, fork in the bottom just to keep you keep you moving and, and it's not... a structure to move you along, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. 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 So it took five what did it take? Five years. It um, that you know, as every almost everybody who does a PhD says at some point during the PhD, why am I doing this? <laughs> why am I torturing myself like this? But it worked. It worked. At the end of it, I had a manuscript of 55,000 words which told my story and yeah. told the, it told the story of my life with my adoptive parents. So it wasn't only my story. It was their story through my eyes, of course, but it still was their story. Um, and that's what it's mainly about. There is a, a, a section, a smallest section about my search for and reunion with my original mother and a few other aspects of my biological family, but it's mainly about my adoptive parents. Um, so, and at the, and now having, having got that manuscript, there's a few little things that need to be tweaked, but it's a tremendously satisfying feeling to have that 
that whole story there. So now um, quite a number of people have read it um, and I've had some really good feedback. But the big thing that I would love to do now is to have someone say, yes, we'll publish it. <laughs> yeah. Which is much more difficult than doing the PhD, I can tell you. <laughs> well, and now, you know, who'd want to be um, trying to launch a book at this time? Like maybe just hold off a couple of months. It could be a perfect timing to launch your book after COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what a what a nightmare time for um, oh, gosh. people in the arts. Well, for everybody, but for oh, people in yeah. the arts. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole other podcast, too. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like you set out to achieve the goals um, that you wanted to with the memoir? Yeah, look, I I do. Um, I think I did. Um, I think um, if I can, in fact, get it published, that will be the that will be that very last part of that that big goal. That that would be that would be great. Yeah. Um, having said that, there's a lot more writing to do. Having having read that, oh, having read, what am I saying? Having written that, um, it's actually made me realise how much more I can write about um, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> the whole subject because there's more that I can write about my adoptive parents to tell more of their story because um, there's all sorts of very, very difficult issues that come up um, and difficult issues that, that spring out of um, writing about uh, being adopted. Um, I mean, there's, there's issues of my my original mother's experience, mm. um, what it was like for her, my adoptive mother's experience, not have, being able to have children because she really, really wanted to have a family. It didn't happen for her in the way that she expected. Um, you know, I learned much later on that she had, that she probably had um, a gynecological problem which prevented her from having children. Um, there's my father's experience um, of being a man in that era, not able to have children. You know, that, that's what, what was it like for him, uh, family pressures on both sides. You know, there's just so much there. Um, you know, there's my own issues with, with family formation. Um, um, you know, I'm not a mother. Um, there's lots of that's that's a whole other podcast. Um, there's lots and lots of issues about family formation that spring out of um, the adoption experience, and you know the the concept of actually being a parent when you were adopted yourself and you had a bad experience with your own. Uh, with being parented, um, I can tell you that really does rough up your whole idea about having your, your own children. Uh, uh, it does. Yeah. I have children, but I can uh, concur with that. It absolutely does. Yeah. yeah. 
Yes, Joe. So um, that's something that I've grappled with over many yeah. years. Um, still grappling with it and need to write write something about it. Yeah. Um, so the, the interesting there's, – there's, there's a note that I made here to myself, Joe, to – to say to you was that having going through the process of writing this memoir and, and doing the research for it, which meant reading lots of other people's uh, adoptee memoirs, some um, uh, parents' memoirs, both adoptive parents and uh, biological parent memoirs, um, and, and particularly late discovery adoptee memoirs, um, of which there are quite a few, as I discovered in my in my research, um, and doing things like going to art galleries and and looking at paintings and looking at performance art and listening, going to films and plays and things, both for research and just normally, just just you know, not for research, but just because that's what you're doing. Um, there are unexpected moments when I, when, when the issue of not necessarily adoption um, overtly, although I can remember being in a, sitting in the, in the, near the front row in a play, um, the name of which now escapes me, but it was a play put on by QTC, Queensland Theatre Company, um, two or three years ago, which had adoption in there. And I hadn't realised that it was there or hadn't realised how big a part it would play. And there was a few minutes there where I thought, I'm going to have to leave. I was getting that that <gasps> intake of breath and, and welling up and... I'm going to have to leave. And I just sat there and sat with it and eventually it was okay. But I get those quite a lot. Um, and there's a there's a experience I, I think I write about, I do write about in the memoir about going to a Asia-Pacific triennial performance uh, art piece uh, by... Um, an Indonesian artist where she now this may sound a little unusual <laughs> to people who don't go to these sorts of things but but she um, stood in front on a bed of charcoal in front of a, uh, a little table with a roller and she would go out carefully into this huge bed of charcoal she would pick up pieces she would put them on the table and she would roll them out um, and it was all about transformation and, and um, you know, turning wood into charcoal and charcoal into dust, and there were all sorts of interesting things that she was doing with this. And while I was watching this, it's a very labour-intensive process that she's doing. She puts her whole body into this piece of art that she's creating, and I'm watching it, and I'm getting this same sort of... <gasps> reaction and the tears are welling up and I'm thinking what is going on here what am I feeling here and I actually didn't quite understand what was going on I didn't see anybody else sort of 
reacting in that way or, or you know, having to leave or do anything. It was it was a open, you could go in and out as you wanted. And and she was doing it for eight hours, may I may I add. So she took the whole day where she just did this for the whole day. And so I went out and I went and looked at the um the little label on the wall that that explained what what who she was and what she was doing. And the title of the piece was I Am a Ghost in My Own House. Mm. <laughs> I got goosebumps. Yeah, it did that to me too, Joe. I thought, I am a ghost in my own house. Wow. It, and, you know, it's a bit like the shark in the garden, you know, and so it, it really, there's just something about it which I can't actually really explain in words. Uh, it was a physical bodily thing that just she transmitted to yeah. me about that. Um, so, and of course, not only a few days before that, I'd been thinking about my adoptive parents' ashes. Um, and so there is a connection there, a very interesting connection. Um, so those moments, they just come out of nowhere like a plank of water to the head. They just come out and hit you and you're thinking, oh, what is going on here? But they keep happening. And even though, you know, as I get older, you know, I'm in my 50s now and these still happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, it's something I think is very important for people to understand uh, if you're not adopted, if you haven't sort of had terribly much trauma in your life, this is one of those things that can happen to you. These these things come out of the blue and they have a connection with that trauma that you have experienced and you suddenly find yourself Intellectually, you might be thinking, oh, no, that's fine. Nothing, nothing going on here. No, move on. And your body is saying, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> and you just sort of, ah. Um, so, yeah, yeah um, that is a really prominent thing for me. It, it happens a lot. Um, and I often yeah. find myself, I cannot, there are certain films I just can't see. I can't go and watch Philomena, for example. Yeah. I just can't do it. I just refuse to go and see it. I can't see it. Yeah. It's too wrenching and I just know I'd be a total mess. Um, certain books, a friend of mine recommended a book to me uh, a few weeks ago, which is a mother-daughter writing about uh, adoption and, and so forth. And, um, you know, I got it out of the library. I had a look at it and I thought, nope, nope, can't read this. <laughs> I totally get it. I totally get it. It's, I mean, it's a lifelong journey and there's there's things that just pop up out of nowhere and and I, there's certainly things I cannot engage with, movies I cannot watch, books I have to put down. You know, I can remember bawling my eyes out one night just after watching a movie and, you know, husband's blissfully asleep next to me and I'm watching with, like, earbuds in on my iPad you know, and having yeah. a total breakdown on the other side of the bed. Yes. So I get it. Yes, Joe. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I hate to call this to an end, but um, we've, we've run out of time. Um, okay. I could talk to you for days, Sue. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for joining us today because late discovery is an added layer in the adoption experience that affects many people. And I know that your story is going to be one that many people will learn from and relate to. So um, be sure to check out the podcast notes on um, on the Jigsaw Queensland webpage for more information. And in the next episode, we'll continue to explore the late discovery experience of adoption. But for now, thank you so much for joining us, Sue. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been wonderful. And uh, Jigsaw and yourself and everybody who works there are just fantastic people and you do great work. And thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Mm-hmm.